So, <clears throat> our last evening together. Feels appropriate uh, on this last evening together to to reflect on these four qualities that Martine mentioned, that really um, point to the heart of what this is all about. Uh, they uh, four qualities of of basic friendliness, of appreciative joy, of compassion and of equanimity. <clears throat> and together the, they, uh, in the, the discourses, they have the name, as many of you will know, Brahma Viharas. And the word Vihara means a dwelling. It's the, the name that's used for a monastery, in fact. And Brahma was referring to one of the, the pantheon of, of gods in the sort of uh, Vedic culture in which the Buddha lived. And so together these mean the dwelling of the gods um, and also imply that uh, if we dwell in these qualities, the mind has an access to freedom. That's, that's how it would have been understood in the Buddha's culture. And all of that can sound rather exalted, you know, the talk of gods. And I love Sharon Salzberg's translation of, of Brahma Viharas as meaning our best home. Our best home. That these four qualities represent our best home. And, and they're so, as well as really lying at the heart of the practice that we do here on retreat, they're so relevant in daily life so relevant in daily life and so portable in daily life. And, and so really it does feel like a, an appropriate evening to be reflecting on them together. And uh, really the sort of um, the foundation of these qualities, uh, certainly of the first three qualities, is this basic friendliness which is one translation of the word metta, the Pali word metta, M-E-T-T-A. And you may have heard various other translations of it. It's often called loving kindness or goodwill. Or I love Pema Chodron's translation of it as an unconditional sense of humor. But there's something about the word friendliness that feels really accessible in that. You know, that sense of this as really being about a basic friendliness that is increasingly boundless, to use the Buddha's words. So, you know, boundless um, in the sense of unlimited. Because one of the things we can see, can't we, so easily is, and we see it as we sit and walk and practice together, that, that our goodwill has limits often. You know, it's, it's, it's quite easy to show a certain goodwill to the breath or the sounds of the birds singing or the taste of the food or the sun shining. But actually when we come up against, you know, the pain in the knee or the fact that um, I keep falling asleep, or that painful thought that keeps coming up, we can feel that suddenly the goodwill ends, doesn't it? And so easily it turns into its opposite, turns into a sense of ill will or aversion or resistance. And we can really track, can't we, how the presence or absence of this quality of metta has a profound effect on how we experience practice. The, 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 um, there's a Tibetan saint in the 18th century who, who said, to meditate without goodwill is simply to inflict hardship on yourself. <laughs> you know? And we can feel that, can't we? You know? Actually, when, when the, sort of, the resistance comes up or the avoidance comes up, actually it just makes it so much more difficult. And... 
you know, the, the cultivation of mindfulness, really, you know, things are better with metta, as they say, you know. Things flow better with metta. Uh, and that the cultivation of mindfulness is not separate from this cultivation of friendliness. In fact, as I mentioned the other day, the Buddha described friendliness as a type of mindfulness. You know. And, you know, it, as, as we've been exploring with the, um, the rejoicing practice today, you know, the, the, the traditional way in which this quality is developed is by starting with things that it's easy to befriend. Uh, and then to move through the categories to things that are more neutral or people that are more neutral, and then to the more difficult categories, and then to all beings. Uh, and this is the progressive training. So, in a sense, what we're being asked to do is expand the sort of circle of our goodwill of, and our friendliness to become gradually more inclusive. And we can see, can't we, how this relates to the Vedana, can't we? Because, you know, in a sense, when we bring to mind someone who we find it easy to love or care about, pleasant Vedana. And so it's easy to extend Vedana, to extend friendliness to that. And then it moves into the more neutral and then into the unpleasant. And so what we're, we're doing in the Vedana practice with the mindfulness, you know, the feeling tone practice, and what we're doing in the friendliness practice, they're really the same process applied in different ways. And um, we can see as we do that, that what we're unlearning by this practice is the sort of reactive closing, the reactive aversion that shuts down, the ways in which we sort of meet a place and sort of we can feel the heart tighten in the body and it you know the, the, the in a, at its root really what this practice is doing is helping us to to uproot aversion which of course is a is a word that one of those words that um, you only really ever hear dharma teachers use the word aversion i hope does everybody get what it means, that sense of resistance or avoidance or, you know, not liking. And, and, you know, it's helpful just to pause and to reflect on the cost of aversion in our lives. You know, how pretty much every difficult mind state is a flavor of aversion, isn't it? You know, the boredom, the judgment, the regret, the hatred, the loneliness, the bitterness, the, the sadness even, you know, or a certain sort of resistant sadness. And, you know, the Buddha really invited us to reflect on the cost of ill will and therefore the benefits of cultivating a kinder, more friendly, more unconditionally friendly heart. We can certainly see in the mental health difficulties that we so easily get into that avoidance and aversion are really integral in, in those. So the, the rumination that is the sort of activity of stress, of anxiety and depression, is often fueled by a trying to get rid of, isn't it? trying to sort of solve a painful memory by hoping that if I think it one more time, it might just go away. I might just understand it. It might just go away. And these are sort of understandable defense mechanisms, but that have a big cost in our lives. And so this practice is one of befriending. You know, if you turn friendliness into a verb, what do we have? a practice of befriending. And, uh, you know, the Buddha uses some beautiful phrases in, in inspiring this in the, in the Metta Sutta. He says, you know, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. 
So inviting that possibility of a more unconditional friendliness, a more sort of resilient goodwill towards the people we encounter in our lives and towards the events and experiences of our lives. And as you, you, know, you know that the pra- practice, um, many of you will know, the practice traditionally starts with oneself because uh, when these practices were sort of collated um, several thousand years actually, uh, several hundred years after the Buddha's life, it was thought in the Asian culture that the self would be the easiest category to begin with. And of course, in Western culture, that's not necessarily the case. You know, often that's the hardest category to begin with, which is why Christina Feldman uh, always she likes to say, "Well, start with the easiest person, and for or the easiest type of being." And for many people, that's penguins. She says, <laughs> "She says it's hard to think of a penguin and not smile." You know, <laughs> and. So actually, you know, as we do this practice of befriending, it's always helpful to start with what's easiest. You know, to start with where the heart naturally smiles. You know, for some people it is their pet. Or, you know, just some figure in, in you know, a lot of people it's the Dalai Lama, you know. Or some other figure who just inspires a natural sense of heart smile. And the practice moves through, you know, the easiest person, and then through these different stages. And the Buddha was unequivocal about the importance of uh, cultivating this friendliness towards ourselves. He said this, you can search throughout the entire universe for someone who is more deserving of your love and affection than you are yourself, and that person is not to be found. You yourself, as much as anyone in the entire universe, deserve your love and affection. It's something to let that in, isn't it? You know, know, what is it to really practice a more, to practice a more unconditional befriending towards ourselves? And we can see that this is not primarily about feelings. Because sometimes people do like the practice we did today, the the rejoicing practice, and they they have a sense of, well, I didn't really feel anything. Some people have said that today. Or they do a befriending practice, I don't feel friendly towards myself. Actually, what we're training is something much more robust than feelings. What we're training in this this practice is a sense of intention, a sense of attitude, a sense of, that's why I quite like the phrase goodwill, because it's a sense of wishing well, wishing well. And that actually, you know, feelings come and go, but I can cultivate that basic intentionality of goodwill. And so as, as you know, many will know, we, we use phrases and tomorrow morning we'll do a metta meditation. And the phrases um, will suggest are the phrases, may I be safe and well. May I be peaceful. May I live with ease and with kindness. May I be safe and well. May I be peaceful. May I live with ease and with kindness. And we can see that it's just this patient inclining of the mind, to use the Buddha's phrase, towards this quality of friendliness. This is what, you know, over time gradually does the work. Some people find it's helpful to drop the may I be and just to say, oh, safe, well, peaceful, ease kindness, or to take one of those words and just to let that word be like a pebble dropped into, into, into a pool, you know, and just let the ripples from that word that somehow evokes a sense of friendliness, to, to let that be the way in which one works with it. And really, you know, there are, um, I don't know if for a few people here, this is a new practice and 
we can't commend it too highly, really. It's such a powerful way of gradually transforming the sort of uh, habits of aversion that can come up in relation, not just to you know, people in our lives, but also to the events and experiences of our lives. It's helpful, I think, to see that metta isn't just about people. You know, it doesn't make much sense to be sort of practicing wishing people well if I'm really in battle with my shoulder, you know, or my knee, you know. Actually, you know, what this is inviting is an attitude of friendliness towards all events and experiences. And so, again, one adaptation of the phrases can be, may I be safe and well in the midst of this? May I be peaceful? in the midst of this. May I live with ease and with kindness in the midst of this. You know. One can even add that phrase in the midst of this to the phrases we were using today. You know, may I appreciate the, you know, my efforts in the midst of this. Because it's, it's a general softening and turning towards that this practice is encouraging. And, and as I said the other day, you know, often that starts with just being willing to tolerate, you know. So when things are difficult, it's, you know, may I be safe and well in the midst of this and just willing to be in the midst of this, you know, willing to, to be present for it. And of course, you know, this... This boundless, this progressively boundless practice, this progressively boundless attitude. You know, we, we move through the pleasant and then we move to the neutral. And of course, the neutral, as with the neutral Vedana of the body or the breath, we so easily slide off, just like we, you know, we don't pay attention to the people who, you know, bring us our post or from whom we um, buy things at the checkout, or the people we pass in the street. And they represent the other 7.5 or whatever it is, billion people on the planet, you know, who we, we don't know, and yet and we can so easily have a sort of rather impersonal relationship with. And what, you know, the philosopher Martin Buber spoke about the difference between I-it relationships and I-thou relationships. You know, where we tend, we can so easily treat certain people just according to their role in our lives, their function in our lives. And what all these Brahma Vihara practices are doing are inviting us to have a more person-to-person -person relationship with people. You know, so we're really practicing seeing the neutral people as people. We're seeing their humanity. We're sensing our common humanity. And then we move to the, the difficult, or those with whom we have some difficulty. And, and again, this requires great patience, requires great uh, willingness just to, sometimes to hold the difficult people in our lives as we do this practice at a distance. To have a sense, well, what feels a safe distance at which I can wish this person well, or at least not wish them harm? Because this practice is not about giving up healthy boundaries, healthy, the healthy boundaries that we need to have in our relationships. What it is about is uprooting the, if you like, the toxic habits of hatred, of ill will, of rejection. We may say, you know, I, I'm not going to have any more contact with that person. So I'm going to have a healthy boundary of no. But can I still practice at least not wishing this person harm? At least not wishing this person harm. Because I know that if there's that hatred in my heart, I suffer. You know, I suffer. And the Buddha taught this practice as protective. He taught this practice of friendliness as a protection against fear, as a protection against hatred. And I, I, uh, 
I remember a time when I was working in a, a lot in a young offenders institution and uh, uh, sometimes it was quite scary. <laughs> a lot of big guys who'd done some pretty violent things and there was sort of little old me. And uh, just noticing what a powerful protection it is in the situations that scare us to practice wishing people well internally. You know, the people who scare us, to practice wishing them well. The phrase is so protective. So protective also against the, the harmful thoughts, the harmful self-judgmental thoughts, the harmful self-critical thoughts that can so sabotage our own well-being. You know, using the phrases to replace the thoughts is one of the ways in which the Buddha taught metta. So that we really use these as protective of the mind, protective against obsession, protective against you know, self-judgment. So we can see that yeah, there's so much to say on this. I'm going to edit what I was going to say. Um, what we're really talking about in a certain way is climate change. You know, in a sense, the only desirable form of climate change and warming, which is that of our own hearts and minds. You know. And really we can see just how much the climate of our minds determines the degree of well-being we experience. And just how helpful it is to practice warming the climate of our minds, to, to, to incline our minds towards greater friendliness. How healing that is of memory. We sometimes can have a sense that I need to work on my stuff in order to feel healed from it. Actually what people often find, and this is the, really the Buddha's model of the mind, is that to change the climate of the mind changes how we experience memory changes how we experience the perception of, of, of the difficulties of our lives. This is a very sort of, in a sense, a, 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 you know, it is a sort of global transformation of the heart-mind that, that we're talking about when doing this practice. And it starts by this willingness to simply say the phrases and practice meaning them. To practice meaning them. And as we do that, we, we do can gradually have a sense that the boundaries of our friendliness do expand. You know, we, are, we can be with more and more experiences without closing down. And, of course, what happens when this friendliness meets joy or happiness or something uplifting is it, it sort of morphs into the second of these Brahma-Vihara qualities appreciative joy. So this, do you get the sense how this metta is the sort of default, if you like, the default attitude to practice. The Buddha said, there is no better attitude to have in the world than metta. And what it does when it meets joy or meets something uplifting is there's a sense of, oh, metta turns into a sense of appreciative joy, a sense of mudita. And how important it is really to cultivate joy, deliberately to cultivate it. Because we can see that there's a sort of evolutionary, survival-based bias against focusing on what's good. Our attention defaults to what's wrong, doesn't it? Like, like Rick Hansen sometimes says, you know, our attention is like Teflon for pleasant experiences and, and Velcro for unpleasant ones, you know. Uh, and we can see just how, you know, we can understand the survival reason for that. We look for what's lacking or threatening or problematic in a certain way. We scan for that and, yes, it's a beautiful day, but my problems are so much more important sort of thing, you know. And so it takes a deliberate choice to cultivate a sense of joy and happiness, you know. It takes a sort of a, a deliberate inclining of the mind in that direction. The Buddha said, and it's such a salutary phrase, he said, whatever the mind frequently dwells upon becomes the shape of the mind. 
whatever the mind frequently dwells upon becomes the shape of the mind. And isn't it interesting how the neuroscience of the last 10 years is showing sort of graphically that that's literally true. You know, what we dwell upon affects the structure and the functioning of our brains, you know. And so, and there's a great, you know, that's a very positive message, isn't it? You know, as well as highlighting, you know, well, what if I'm practicing rumination, I get better at rumination, you know. If I'm practicing self-judgment, I get better at self-judgment, anxiety, depression. If I'm practicing gratitude, like we've been doing today, if I'm practicing looking for what uplifts, like we've been doing today, if I'm practicing counting the blessings in this life, that too becomes the shape of the mind. And, and really, you know, the gratitude practice, we can feel, I don't know if anybody else had this feeling today, a couple of people commented on it, but it just feels like it, when you have that sense of, you know, I'm grateful for this existence. You can see why the sort of Native American and First Nation people say that gratitude restores right relationship. You know, our, it restores an appropriate relationship with life. You know, Meister Eckhart, the Christian mystic, said, if the only prayer you ever say is thank you, that's enough. You know? And just how, what a difference it makes when we make gratitude part of our daily rhythm, you know. Such a valuable thing as we, you know, go back into daily life tomorrow maybe. Just to, to sort of choose gratitude as something we're going to practice each day. Really, you know, uh, the research, you know, with young people suggests, you know, if young people think of three things a day that they're grateful for and really take time to reflect on those, it can have a very significant impact on their mental health, you know. Uh, and this is this appreciative joy. It's this sort of resonant joy where we're willing to open to uh, and let, if you like, the good facts of our life become good experiences, you know. So it's not just the sort of the idea of nature or the idea of you know, a sense of community but really letting it in as an experience and we can see just how easy this is traditionally regarded as the most difficult of these four qualities to cultivate because it's it's so easy to get in the way of that isn't it by beliefs that we may have the beliefs that you know i can't really be happy unless or until, or, you know, I can't allow myself to be happy, I don't deserve to be happy. Or I, I notice sometimes that there can be that sort of belief in the heart that, you know, uh, there's something wrong with my life. And just feel how influential these beliefs can be in obstructing a sense of gratitude, obstructing a sense of appreciative joy. Uh, and what this, this practice really invites us to do is to practice enoughness. Practice enoughness. You know, I find one of the, a really helpful antidote to those sorts of beliefs is something like, this moment is like this, and that's okay. This moment, you can even just do it right now as you sit. Just have a sense of this moment is like this. And that's okay. And seeing how it is to rest into that. You know, and, and, and feel how, you know, actually our capacity for a sense of Gratitude does not depend on everything having to be perfect. You know, this is the wisdom of imperfection. I love that description in Zen. They say, enlightenment is non-anxiety about imperfection. That's one to put on the post-it note on your computer screen, you know. 
non-anxiety about imperfection. Because what one discovers is the more one's really, you know, saying this moment is like this and that's okay, the whole idea of imperfection dissolves a bit, you know, because it's just this. It's the thisness of this moment, the suchness of this moment. And James Baraz, who's a Dharma teacher in uh, America, he um, there's a lovely clip on, he runs a course called Awakening Joy, uh, which is a wonderful online course, if any of you would like to explore this particular quality further. So awakeningjoy.info or something like that, I think. And he, on it, there's a clip of his 90-something-year-old mother telling everybody how James ruined her life because she said she was really addicted to grumbling and complaining. And James taught her a practice, which was, he said, whenever you grumble, on the end of what you say, just add the, the phrase, and my life is really blessed. <laughs> and she said, you know, she did it for a bit, and she just, you know, yeah, it's all wrong, it's raining today, the TV's not working. She was losing her sight at the time. Losing my sight. And my life is really blessed, you know. And my life is really blessed, you know. And, you know, this is a 90-year-old, you know, losing her sight. And she, she really found it was a very transformative practice. <laughs> you know, that's, that's another one to take home. And my life is really blessed. You know, because in a sense, this practice asks, you know, challenges us, what story are we going to practice? Are we going to practice the story of lack or the story of blessings? Because our happiness depends on which story we choose to practice. So this, this, this practice of joy, I'm conscious that this is a, you're getting the drive-through version of the uh, Brahma Viharas this evening. There's so much that could be said about each of these, but... You know, just that reflection, okay, and my life is really blessed. And that, that sense of this, my life is really blessed can coexist with the difficulties, you know. And it's all about which story we practice. So this, this basic friendliness that encounters the joys and or encounters that which is beautiful or uplifting or a blessing and can be you know, elevated by that, can be uplifted by that, can also, you know, when it encounters suffering and encounters that which is difficult, we can feel how this basic friendliness also can respond with a certain compassion, with, can respond with that, that sense of allowing ourselves to be touched, allowing ourselves to be affected by suffering. The suffering in this being, the suffering in those around us, the suffering in the world. And it seems as if compassion has two aspects to it, one of which is a sort of receptive quality, where we're really, if you like, resonant, to use Martin's word. We're really resonant with what we're experiencing as we encounter suffering. And then a responsiveness. A willingness, there's a movement in compassion to respond. In the, in the Pali language, there are two words for compassion, one of which is to be, is for the heart to quiver in response to the sorrow of another. And the other word, karuna, is, is about going, turning outwards to meet and respond and seek to alleviate. And often we think of compassion as having a certain heaviness to it. But if you think of moments in your life when you've experienced generous, compassionate response, either in yourself to somebody else or from somebody else to you, don't we find that often there's a, there's a, a loveliness about that? There can be something sort of spontaneous and reconnecting about compassion. It's not a sort of premeditated fix-it, is it, compassion? It's a sort of, it's an immediate gesture of support or solidarity or kindness. I love uh, the story. So, you, some people have heard me tell this story a lot, but it's just a, so I find it such an inspiring story from the Zen tradition where, where uh, the student asks the teacher, what's the goal of a lifetime of practice? 
pretty big question, isn't it? At the end of four days of this, you know, what, what's the goal? And the teacher comes back, an appropriate response. And I love that sense that maybe this is about, what this is about, what we're doing here is about, is developing our ability to respond more and more appropriately to the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows that we encounter in our world and in our life. You know? And that sense of how you know, the appropriateness of our response is so often dependent on the degree to which we're really listening to the situation. You know, if, if I've got a premeditated fix-it plan, often the, the response is a little bit, sort of can be a little bit of a misfit, you know. But if there's a deep listening going on, a deep listening to what somebody else is telling me, rather than thinking about, you know, what I think they should do, but actually really being present for them, what they're saying, or a deep listening to the situation in an organization or a community or a family, a deep listening to our own hearts, you know. It seems that when there's a deep listening that is really present, it's almost like the heart has a natural intelligence that arises and responds. Often we have to wait for that. But actually there's something, I think, in all these Brahma Viharas, but particularly in compassion, that is about really trusting listening, trusting the power of, of bearing witness, if you like, to people, to situations, to our own heart. In a sense, it's what we've been doing all week, isn't it? Really bearing witness to our experience moment by moment and cultivating a skillful responsiveness, our capacity to respond skillfully by finding our feet or connecting with the breath or going to the sounds or you know, really holding ourselves with, with kindness and compassion. We can see just how uh, deep is the tendency to um, close down in the face of suffering or the fear of suffering, the fear of pain. Pema Chodron compares our hearts to being like a sea anemone. I can never say that word quite. Is that right? Anemone? Yeah. A sea anemone. That, that you know how they have this sort of soft center and yet when something approaches them they, they close in self-protection you know and the heart can so easily be like that can't it it can sort of close in in reaction to the fear of pain or the fear of pain getting more intense or being somehow of not going away and we can feel as as Martin said today that that, that has a sort of contraction in the body and often what happens with that is there's a sort of selfing and an othering that takes place. You know, when we think about how, you know, our workplaces, so easy for there to be sort of in-groups and out-groups or the management or the staff, you know, and the way in which the heart seems so easily to create self and other in response to pain and the fear of pain. You know, very, very understandable and very, very costly in terms of our relationships, our communities, our well-being. Because the poignancy of the heart closing, of course, is that the greater pain is the pain of isolation, the pain of disconnection. You know, if you think about our most difficult mental states like shame or loneliness, not feeling understood, it's the sense of disconnection in that that is often so painful. You know? And so, you know, there are many practices in the tradition of, of uh, really starting to recognize more and more fully our common humanity. There's that beautiful story in the Buddha's teachings of the mother coming grief-stricken to the Buddha because her child had died and the Buddha said I can help heal this but only when you go and collect a mustard seed from each house in the village where no one has died 
And of course, what she does is she goes around the houses and says, has anybody died in this house? And of course they say, yes. And so she comes back to the Buddha and she's really realized that actually this is something we share, this common humanity we share. And, and this was sort of deeply healing for her. She went on and, and, and uh, became a really accomplished practitioner. And I love Ajahn Suchito invites people to, to just use the phrase, like me. So you see somebody struggling. You know, you think, oh, like me. You know, you see somebody rejoicing. You say, oh, like me. You see somebody on the news, say, oh, like me. See someone homeless, like me. And just that reflection on our, that what we share is so much greater than, than what divides us. <laughs> you know, and this, of course, is not about homogenizing us, but it's recognizing the common humanity, that although our stories of loss or our stories of difficulty may be different, the experience of these states is so very similar. There's that saying, isn't it, that an enemy is someone whose story you've not yet heard. And how easily it is, how easy it is to create subtle degrees of enemy or otherness, you know. And, and how healing it can be to have that sense of, like me. The Tibetan sage Milarepa said, long accustomed to cultivating compassion, I can no longer think in terms of self and other. And in a sense what we're saying, although self and other have validity and use at some levels, they become a prison if we take them to be the ultimate nature of things. If what we end up emphasizing is our disconnection rather than our deep connection and our deep commonality. And of course, this is not about idealism. You know, of course, our hearts do close in self-protection and but that's really important. And my goodness, you know, if we watch the news, you can feel how we sort of protect ourselves against how awful it so often is. But can that be that current of intention, you know, that, that Viktor Frankl described as the last of the human freedoms, the freedom to choose our attitude in any set of circumstances, you know? towards a sense of compassion, towards a sense that actually uh, the appropriate response to suffering is compassion rather than judgment and condemnation. Even if, again, we may need a very strong no as part of that compassion. Compassion can take many forms. If you see the images of the Bodhisattva of compassion, Kuan Yin, some of them have many different arms and they have different implements. Some of them have a, a, a willow branch to bless or a, a vase of ointment to soothe. And some of them have an axe or a sword, which I think points to the, the validity sometimes of a compassionate and fierce no as an appropriate response to suffering. So if, if our compassion is going to be really attuned to circumstances, we need to be versatile. You know, this is not about being nice. You know, it's not about giving up healthy boundaries. It's about saying, can I, as Kabir puts it, do what I do but not put anyone out of my heart. And of course, that's where equanimity, the last of these qualities, comes in. Uh, equanimity, compassion, joy, friendliness need equanimity. And equanimity needs the warm-heartedness of compassion, joy, and friendliness. And there's equanimity, of course, is another word that you normally only hear in Dharma circles. 
But if you think about what it means, it's a very, it's a very helpful word. It's, it's one that the, the dictionary, the English dictionary, has helpful descriptions of it, of, of a sense of even-mindedness, a sense of impartiality, a capacity to be undisturbed by good or ill fortune. One could call it sort of the capacity to, to respond rather than to react. You know. And one of the Pali words for it means to stand in the middle of things. To be able to stand in the middle of things. And that, of course, is what Christina Feldman's referring to in that description she I, I quoted of the willingness and capacity to stand equally near all events and experiences with interest, with friendliness, with discernment. Here's a, a poem about equanimity. Or something resembling it. If you can start the day without caffeine or pep pills, if you can be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, if you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you time, if you can overlook when people take things out on you when, through no fault of yours, something goes wrong, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can face the world without lies and deceit, if you can conquer tension without medical help, if you can relax without alcohol, if you can sleep without the aid of drugs, then you're probably a dog. <laughs> and we can see how maybe dogs are better at equanimity than we are. Yeah. Dogs get over things more quickly than we do, don't they? <laughs> you know, dogs don't sort of ruminate about things as far as we're aware. You know, and you know, in a sense, that points to the you know the the wisdom of of imperfection in relation to all of this, in the sense that it's a practice. It's a practice to learn to. Uh, stand in the middle of what the Buddha described as the eight worldly winds of gain and loss, of praise and blame, of fame and disrepute, and of pleasure and pain. Do you get those, those pairs? Do you get how we like the first ones and not the second ones there? You know, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. And yet, part of what he's saying by calling them worldly winds is that these blow through every life. And there's something very impersonal about that in the sense of, you know, they blow through every life and it's not our fault. You know, this is what it is to be a human being, to experience these eight worldly winds blowing through our lives. And of course, the more we're invested in just getting the first in each pair, the more we're attached to that, the more we set ourselves up to suffer. You know, the more there can be a sense of actually these are just the winds of life blowing. Uh, the more we incline the mind towards a sense of equanimity. As, as we've been exploring the last couple of days, this reactivity to unpleasant feeling tone really lies at the genesis of all of our sort of difficulties and dramas, if you like. <laughs> and, and what, as well as, you know, the, the mental health difficulties that we can get into. And, and that what this practice invites is this capacity to, to be with and turn towards and stand in the middle of a wider and wider range of experiences without closing down. A sense, as one teacher puts it, of, oh, this too, this too, this too. And, you know, what if happiness 
doesn't really lie so much in accumulating the pleasant and getting rid of the unpleasant, but actually more reliably comes from orienting our hearts and minds towards a greater equanimity, towards a greater peacefulness in the midst of the changing dance of experiences. Because then, whatever happens is an opportunity to practice that. Does that make sense, that, that sense of possibility? Because we so, you know, we're biologically sort of programmed to pursue the pleasant and avoid the unpleasant, and yet we can see, although that is a programming for survival, it's not a programming for happiness, <laughs> you know? And that, and that this orientation towards an equanimity, a willingness to be with, to breathe with, to allow, even to begin to befriend, the changing dance of experiences, pleasant, unpleasant, and, and neutral. What if that's actually the, the wiser orientation for our hearts? And we can see that, to sort of close the loop, how this equanimity is what enables friendliness, joy, and compassion to be boundless. Because without this equanimity, it's so easy for them to fall into what are called their near or far enemy states. So this, the near enemy states, for instance, of, of friendliness is attachment and clinging. The near enemy of joy is a sort of intoxication, you know, where we're a bit sort of euphoric and a bit ungrounded. The near enemy of compassion is despair. Or pity. Do we, do we sense how you know it's equanimity that enables us actually to be with the changing dance of experiences without the reactivity that says, oh, that's pleasant, I've got to cling to it, or that's unpleasant, I've got to get rid of it. And in a sense, it's, it's this equanimity that gives the, the wisdom factor to these, these four interacting qualities. It's the equanimity that gives the sort of coolness that supports the warm-heartedness. Thich Nhat Hanh said, this path is about having a very cool head and a very warm heart. And that somehow the coolness of the head, which quietens the reactivity, enables the more unconditional warmth of the heart. Does that make sense? Can we feel that? You know. How without a sense of equanimity where we can be with the joys and sorrows without you know, just clinging to the pleasant and trying to avoid the unpleasant, we can be with them knowing their impermanence, knowing that they're changing, actually enables a more resilient big-heartedness. In, in our presence in the world. Hmm. And of course, the place where we practice this is now. You know, you can sense the anemone heart of this moment. If you really come into the present moment. How is the heart right now? How the heart right now is meeting the experience of this moment. This is the place where we cultivate these qualities. This is the place where we cultivate wisdom and compassion, friendliness, equanimity. Can this tender, Anemone heart, be awake and allowing and interested and responsive to this moment, to this. You know, this is how we cultivate that sense of appropriateness response that is the goal of a lifetime of practice. So these four qualities, these four beautiful qualities of, of uh, 
friendliness, basic friendliness, appreciative joy, compassion and equanimity. Really the crown jewels of the Dharma. The crown jewels of the Dharma. Supporting each other, balancing each other. Inviting us to open to this moment's experience with a sensitivity, with a responsiveness to to joy and to sorrow. And with the wisdom mind, the coolness that is willing to be with whatever life is presenting. Or at the very least to practice being with more and more of what life is presenting. You know, as we cultivate these qualities, they they work together to undo the habits of separation, of closing down, of disconnection, of fragmentation within our hearts and within our relationships. And together they support the, the cultivation, the practicing of a heart that is receptive and responsive and that is tender and awake and free. So, these are the reflections on these qualities. Um, I was going to, to end by reading the Metta Sutta. Um, do you have stamina just to hear that? Because it's just a beautiful piece of poetry that is, has been used as a protection chant, has been used as a blessing chant, has been used as a, a daily inspiration. Uh, since the earliest times, this is one of the oldest passages in the Pali Canon. It's one of the passages that the scholars think really did come from the Buddha himself. And so it's, these are very ancient words of wisdom that really sum up a lot of what uh, we've been doing together. Um, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. 
This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. So let's just take a few moments of silence together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.